it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. How how many of us are Dickens fans? Well, some of us may recognize these well-known opening lines from Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. Set in Paris and London around the time of the French Revolution, this classic work of historical fiction contrasts two cities, London and Paris, and it contrasts the characters who live in these two cities. Well, long before Dickens wrote, uh, the prophet Isaiah also wrote about two contrasting cities, or more specifically, two different versions of the same city, the actual versus the ideal. Well, the actual Jerusalem is a proud, man-centered city destined for judgment. The ideal Jerusalem is a holy, God-centered city that blesses the world. You know, these two versions could not be more different. But what's amazing about Isaiah's vision is how uh, the actual Jerusalem becomes transformed into the ideal. You know, many of us want to become the best version of ourselves. You know, Google best version of yourself and lots of advice can be found on the internet. You know, who we actually are now is not the ideal. I think most of us are honest enough to acknowledge that. But how do we get from the actual to the ideal? How do we get to become the so-called best version of ourselves? You know, many of our efforts at change fall flat, leaving us disappointed, discouraged, maybe not a little disillusioned. But these chapters in Isaiah hold forth the promise of true change, true hope of real change, not superficial, not cosmetic, but real, lasting transformation. You know, this tale of two cities points us to what God will do to transform a people from being less than ideal to His ideal for them. It's a story of righteous judgment. It's a story of gracious redemption. It's a story of how God brings us low to lift us up. God confronts us as we actually are so that we might so that He might redeem us to be who we should ideally be. Well, here's the big idea of these chapters, Isaiah 2 to 4. God humbles the proud and exalts the redeemed. This story is good news for sinners like us, and I pray that this story will be our story. So let's begin by considering the proud humble. Well, Isaiah 2 to 4 is really one vision contrasting the actual Jerusalem, the city as it is, with the ideal Jerusalem, the city as it should be. Uh, This vision expands on what Isaiah had already said in Isaiah 1, verse 21, which says God will judge Jerusalem because the previously faithful city has become unfaithful. But this judgment is not to destroy the city, but to purify it. If you look back in Isaiah 1, verses 25 and 26, God says, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie. Afterward, 
you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. In Isaiah 2 to 4, the verses about God's judgment are sandwiched between the promise of what God will do to redeem and transform Jerusalem. So it's a bit of a bracket structure. So on both ends of these chapters, you have the promise of transformation and in the middle, the warning of judgment. So we'll focus first on the middle section before we look at the book ends. Hence, point one, how the proud are humbled by God's judgment. Let me read for us, picking it up from Isaiah 2 verse 6, reading to 22. Isaiah 2 verse 6. And we are, we are on page 531 of our Pew Bibles. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands. So, so what their own fingers, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humble, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of men shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Instead of trusting God, Jerusalem takes pride in the world. We've just read these verses. Uh, look, look first at verses 6 to 8. You notice how the words full and filled are repeated throughout these verses. Jerusalem stores up for itself treasures on earth. It leans on worldly power. They buy into the lies, superstitions, and ways of the world. Uh, they worship idols, idols that they've made with their own hands, now, Jerusalem's problem is not that it lacks anything, but that it is filled with everything except God. You know, Jerusalem's problem is not that it doesn't have enough, but that it has too much. You know, when we have too much, 
it's easy to trust in what we have rather than to trust in God. And that, Isaiah says, is a form of pride, the pride of having too much. You know, living in an affluent society, uh, we unquestioningly assume that more is always better, that our solution, that the solution to our problem, problems can always be found in just having more. But Isaiah tells us that worldly success, worldly abundance, worldly prosperity can deceive us into thinking that we're okay, but we're actually spiritually poor. You know, if you remember the words of Jesus to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, he says to them, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, Jesus says this word, it's indeed, in the Gospels, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know, abundance can blind us to the fact that we actually need God. You know, our lives revolve around getting good grades, seeking job satisfaction and success, buying our dream home, planning our next holiday, pursuing a comfortable retirement. You know, how have we filled our lives with so many worldly cares and pursuits that we have crowded God out? You know, how have we taken pride in the things of the world that we've accumulated for ourselves? You know, it's easy to think that we're doing fine because we have all these things, trusting in these things to give us joy and security. But Isaiah issues the sober warning to us that God will humble the proud because His people have turned their backs on Him. He will reject them by removing His favour from them. To make the world our friend is to make God our enemy. You know, look at verses, two, uh, verses seven, 9 to 11. God Himself will come to judge because only God is truly worthy of all our trust and worship. He cannot stand idly by while our pride robs Him of glory. God will judge because God is God and we are not. Now, pride is especially offensive to Him because God will not share His glory with another. Pride takes glory away from God. Indeed, he says in the latter half of Isaiah, my glory I will give to no other. And the Lord will judge the pride of men so that He alone will be exalted in that day. And God has prepared a day of judgment when every one of us will have to give an account for how we have lived, whether we've lived for God's glory or whether we've lived for our own glory. You know, friends, whose glory are we living for today? Whose reputation are you most concerned about? As you start work tomorrow morning, whose reputation are you working for? As you start school tomorrow, whose reputation concerns you? Your own or Christ's? As you parent, as you are a child of parents, whose reputation concerns you the most? And God will, judge every, God will judge by removing everything we boast in 
or exalt in his place. Look at verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. You know, verses 13 to 14 focus on various things, and these are images that represent various things that we trust in. The cedars of Lebanon, the oaks of Bashan, the lofty mountains, the uplifted hills, refer to whatever we trust in for strength. You know, this week I fell sick, and that was a timely reminder to me that I depend on God for health, for life. I can't take any of these things for granted. Falling sick is a very uh, stark reminder that I do not depend on myself. God will, God will also lay low every high tower and fortified wall, verse 15. You know, these are things that we trust in for our security. Verse 16, the ships of Tarshish and beautiful craft, you know, these represent our pride in human skill, our enterprise, our resourcefulness. You know, do we boast about being self-sufficient, self-made people? I think one of the lies that society tells us about merit is that we merit our position, that we are what we are and we deserve to be what we are because we've earned it. Oh, really? Have we truly earned our position, every part of it? Hasn't God a, doesn't God have a part to play providentially in providing for us, in giving us life and breath, causing us to be born in a particular time and place to a particular family, giving us all the gifts that we have and use? Do we really deserve to be where we are simply because of our own merit? Verse 17 expands on the warning of verse 11. Notice the repetition there. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. At the last judgment, only God will be worshipped. But we don't have to wait till then to see how God removes the pride of men. History is full of examples of how the mighty have fallen. You know, even in this context of Isaiah's book, soon we'll see how Jerusalem will be overthrown by the Babylonians, who were then conquered by the Persians, who in turn were defeated by the Greeks, were then replaced by the Romans. Our friends, we are too easily impressed by human power and prestige. Empires rise and fall. The influential, the powerful, the rich, the famous, the leaders of today will be forgotten tomorrow. You know, Jerusalem was tempted to trust in alliances with foreign nations for security instead of trusting in God. These verses are a stark reminder to Jerusalem that man cannot save. In fact, the nations that Judah was tempted to rely on will also face God's judgment. His judgment is not just local, but it's global. It's worldwide. Notice how he says in verse 19, when he rises to terrify the earth. Isaiah here speaks of a worldwide judgment, not just a local judgment on Jerusalem. I think in these verses, Isaiah shows that God is sovereign over all nations, not just over the nation of Judah. And Judah is 
is warned and Judah is exhorted to trust in this sovereign God alone and to not enter into any alliances with the nations around it. And God's judgment will also expose the impotence of our idols. Verse 18, the idols shall utterly pass away. Now, have we considered that idolatry is a form of pride? Now, we think our own hands can make gods in our own image. And we can then manipulate these gods that we've made to give us what we want. You know, that, that really is the supreme expression of pride, isn't it? So we're not actually worshipping the idol, we're actually worshipping ourselves and what we've made. But on the day of judgment, mankind will realise that our idols have no power to save. Verse 20, In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold when they, when they made for themselves to worship. The great tragedy of idolatry is that we will realize too late that all that we've trusted in for our worth will turn out to be worthless. Let me read on in Isaiah chapter 3, reading from 1 to 15. Isaiah 3, 1 to 15. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the, and the man of rank, the counsellor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms, and I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbour. The youth shall be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honourable. For a man shall take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the, Lord, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it, is, it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean? By crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, in these verses, in verses 1 to 7, uh, the Lord will take away Jerusalem and Judah's stability to undermine their pride. You notice how he says uh, he will remove basic essentials like food and water. He will replace their leaders with irresponsible, foolish leaders. 
and then the whole social order will break down. Corruption and oppression will abound because of what the Lord will do. Then you look at verses 6 and 7, nobody will want to lead. You know, have you ever thought, we ever think about this, that the lack of leadership is a judgment from God. If the people refuse to follow godly leaders, then God may very well remove such leaders, leaving the people as sheep without shepherds. That is a judgment from God. So desperate will they be for leaders in that time that anyone will do, right? You know, any warm body. You know, they'll say, hey, you have a cloak. You look slightly more respectable than the rest of us. You shall be our leader. Verse 6. And even then, no one will step forward. Nobody wants to lead. Verse 7, you shall not make me a leader of the people. It is a leaderless people leading to destruction. We should pray for godly leadership, shouldn't we? We should pray for those who are in leadership over us, whether in government or elsewhere. Uh, in this local church, pray for our leaders, pray for our elders, pray for the deacons, Pray for those who lead your CGs, who lead your ministries. And pray for our leaders to remain humble, to remain obedient, and to remain faithful to God. And pray for God to raise up godly leaders among us. You know, pray that we would have a, a humble willingness to lead, which means to serve, to lay down our life for the good of others. That is a gift from God. I pray that we would use godly and not worldly criteria to assess whether someone is suited to serve. I pray that we never get so desperate that any warm body will do. I pray that we will notice things like Christ-like character, like faithfulness to the truth, rather than worldly status, credentials, or worldly success. I pray that we will encourage godly leaders by trusting and following them as they lead us to follow Christ. You know, pray that we would have opportunity as a church to send godly leaders, to have more leaders than we need, that we are able to send leaders out to other churches in need of leaders. These are good things to pray for, friends. You know, verses 8 to 9 tell us why God is judging proud Jerusalem. It's because they defy the Lord with their words and actions. Instead of worshipping him, they defiantly shake their fist in his face. And the, and the people sin without shame. God likens them to Sodom. Not the first time in Isaiah where his people are referred to as Sodom. God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. We will be well with those who repent and walk in righteousness, verse 10. But woe to the unrepentant and the wicked, verse 11. God will judge. Instead of following godly leaders, the people allow bad, unqualified leaders to lead them astray. Verse 12, Oh my people, your guides mislead you. You're listening to the wrong people. Instead of caring for God's people, these leaders take advantage of others for personal gain. They exploit the poor and vulnerable. They're like wolves feeding on the flock rather than feeding the flock. And they're, they're like the false teachers mentioned in the New Testament. 
who feed themselves rather than God's people. But the Lord will judge ungodly leaders and He also will hold us accountable for the leaders whom we follow. Let's go on. Let me read from verses 16 to chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty, she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Well, these verses describe the women of Jerusalem and what God will do to them. You know, whether or not, I think Isaiah could be referring to an actual group of women, or, or these women could be representative of a particular spirit that permeates God's people. You know, these women are proud and vain. They show off fancy clothes and jewelry. You know, these women may represent the nation's hedonism, the, the pleasure-seeking spirit that's taken hold of God's people. Self-indulgence, materialism, consumerism. You know, these women are a commentary on our own times, aren't they? They glory in their own appearance, instead of glorying in God. You know, we also live in a me-first, pleasure-seeking culture that glories in appearances. Uh, the culture seeks us, the culture tells us to satisfy our wants, to live for our desires. You know, you do you and I do me. That's happy, right? We're tempted to take pride in our possessions and pleasure. We're tempted to care more about keeping up appearances through fashion and fitness than about keeping our hearts. So yeah, we escape into eating. We escape into entertainment. Now, as one social commentator put it some years ago, what we love will ruin us. What we love will ruin us. And God will judge by taking away the things that distract us from Him. That's the point of verses 17 to 26. In that day, God will turn silk to sackcloth, beauty to brokenness. And having lost everything, these women will desperately seek shelter. They'll desperately seek a place of refuge in marriage, even to the extent of paying their own way. And this is 
culturally very upside down, right? Because the understanding is that if you get married, your husband will provide for you. But here they're telling their potential suitors, hey, will you marry us? We'll take care of our own needs. Just marry us to take away our shame, to take away our reproach. But just as there are no leaders for God's people, so there will be no husbands to take away their shame. God will humble the proud by taking away the things we depend on. God helps us realize that our loss cannot be compared with the gain of knowing Christ. Only then will we learn not to boast in our wisdom, our might, or our riches, but to boast in the Lord alone. And the main application for these verses is really given in, in the middle of, of these chapters, in, in verse 22. You know, look at verse 22. You know, that, that really is the, su- the, 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 summing, the, the summary application of, the, of these verses that we've read. Stop regarding man, chapter 2, verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? That's the key takeaway in these verses. Don't trust in man. Don't trust in ourselves. Don't trust in the stuff that we can do for ourselves, the things that we can accumulate, the works of our own hands. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. We are as fleeting as breath. So instead of trusting in man, should we not rather trust in God who is the giver of breath? Well, the proud Jerusalem of Isaiah's time will be judged, but judged not to destroy the city, not to wipe out the people of God completely, but judged to transform the city from faithless to faithful, And God is not done with His people. Although they have been faithless, He remains faithful. And as I said earlier, Isaiah 2-4 is bracketed by promises of hope. God will rescue. and God will restore His people. And He will humble the proud in order to exalt the redeemed. So let's begin by looking at the two bookends of these chapters. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 2. Verses 1 to 5. We're here in our second point, the redeemed exalted. Chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, let us come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Well, Jerusalem will be humble, as we've seen in our earlier readings. But Isaiah looks forward to a time. And here in verse 2, he says, the latter days. There'll come a time 
when Mount Zion will be exalted to the highest of the mountains. You know, in the Old Testament, mountains are taken to represent kingdoms. So what God is saying here is that God will establish His kingdom above all earthly kingdoms. His kingdom will tower above all the other earthly kingdoms. And His kingdom will be centred on Zion, or Jerusalem. And the nations of the world will be drawn to Jerusalem to know God and to hear His word. The peoples of the world will be gathered under God's rule and they shall live in peace, converting their weapons of war into peaceful farming tools. And this way, God's people, Jerusalem, will be ideal. It will finally fulfill its ideal God-given purpose. Well, to understand this ideal that God has for His people, Jerusalem, we have to rewind and go back right to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis, God had promised Abraham that his offspring would bless the nations. In the Exodus, God rescued Abraham's descendants from Egypt that they might be his holy nation. And God redeemed Israel to display his glory and to be the ones who teach his word to the nations. They were meant to display by their life together as a nation what God is like and to be a magnet for the nations to come and worship God. But instead of being a witness to the world, as you read on in the Old Testament, Israel became just like the world. Israel served idols rather than serving God. In, in Isaiah chapter 42, the Lord says this of Israel, Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? Israel was a blind and deaf servant, failed to serve the Lord. Well, Israel's story echoes in our own stories, doesn't it? God created us in His image. He made us to reflect what He's like. He made us to show His glory. That's what we were created for. To reflect the goodness of His grace, the beauty of His character and His ways. But instead of serving Him, all of us have selfishly served ourselves. We are a lot like Old Testament Israel. We have pridefully chosen to live life our way, not God's way. And the Bible calls this sin. And we've all sinned. But the good news of these verses in Isaiah is that God will save sinners like us through an obedient servant another servant whom God will raise up. And this servant will succeed where others have failed. When, when are these latter days that Isaiah speaks of in 2 verse 2? Well, I put it to us that the latter days have already arrived with the coming of Jesus Christ. You know, listen to how Hebrews 1 uh, describes these days. Right? He says, in these, day, in these last days, we are living in the last days. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. The latter days are already here because the King has already come. Jesus has fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. He came, the obedient servant, 
the obedient Israel, the true Israel of God. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. Thanks to Jesus' work, God's kingdom is exalted above all kingdoms of the world. And Jesus invites us to enter his kingdom by repenting of our sins and trusting in him alone to save us. Jesus is the promised son of Abraham. and He is the one who will bless the nations. It is to him that all nations come, not to an earthly city, but to a person. It's no coincidence that in John's gospel, Jesus says these words, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I think he's, I think he's alluding to the language of Isaiah 2 in what he says in John 12. So to know God, we don't come to a place, we don't go to a city, but to know God, we come to a person. We come to Jesus who is the Word of God made flesh, the true Israel of God, Jesus Christ. He will teach us God's ways that we may walk in His paths. And now Jesus is gathering around Himself a new people who believe in Him. Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled in Christ and through Him in His people, the church. Our purpose as God's church is to glorify God by bearing witness to God's kingdom. Now, how do we do that? We are to be a people of God's truth. We teach and live out God's word and ways. And God commissions His disciples to make disciples of all nations, beginning with Jerusalem until the ends of the earth. His gospel goes out from us to the nations. And we can proclaim Christ with the confidence that God is the one who will draw the nations to His Son. And I, I love the image in verse 2, the, nation, the, the image of nations flowing up the mountain like a river. You know, that strikes you as somewhat impossible. Well, that's the point. This work is not ours, but this work is God's. He's the one who draws the nations to His Son like a river going upwards up a mountainside. You know, Isaiah 2 verse 4 is, is associated with the United Nations. It's on a sculpture outside the United Nations building in New York City. It's also on a wall opposite the United Nations in a park. Isaiah 2 verse 4, specifically, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. I, th I think that expresses uh, human hope for peace and, and the hope that the United Nations can be the organization to bring this peace about. Well, these verses tell us that God's people are to be a people of peace who live in unity under one Lord, King Jesus. This is true peace, friends. Not the peace that man brings not a ceasefire, not a temporary truce, but true lasting peace. And Jesus is our peace. He has reconciled us to God and to one another, removing the barrier of our sins that we might draw near. And Jesus is the one who unites many as one. And he enables us to love one another 
despite our different ages, ethnicities, nationalities, or backgrounds. And thanks to Jesus, we can build deep spiritual friendships with those who are different from us. As God's church, we show the truth of the gospel by loving one another, especially those who are different from us. Missions entails these two aspects. Go and tell and come and see. The church goes with the gospel. The church also invites others to come and see what God is like. You know, this is why the planting and growing of healthy local churches is central to the work of missions because we need local communities that tell the people around them to come and see. This is what God is like. That's what's happening in Isaiah 2. To learn more about this, sign up for the missions conference with John Fomer. He's going to talk about the centrality of the church in missions. The church is to be a worship magnet by making God's kingdom visible. Now, our life together as God's people is meant to draw others in. And this is God's ideal for His people. This is God's ideal for us, His church. He has saved us into His people so that we together as His people can display His glory. So friends, if, if you're not a member of a local church, make the church central to your Christian life. Join a church so that you can, together with brothers and sisters, make Christ visible in your life together. And may God help us to love one another so that others may be drawn to Christ through us. God will exalt His people by redeeming and purifying them through the refining fires of judgment. Let me read chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. In that day, which refers to the latter or last days of 2, verse 1 to 5, so in that day, <coughs> the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honour of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain." God will create a holy people by cleansing them of their sin and guilt. And he will save his people through judgment. Yes, Jerusalem will fall to Babylon and its people go into exile. But these verses promise us that God judges not to destroy, but to purify. And there will, there will be a return. And God saves sinners like us through judgment. But the good news is that Jesus bears that judgment in our place. Jesus, through his death on the cross, bore God's judgment in the place of all who would believe in Him. God does not compromise His holiness or righteousness in forgiving sinners because when He forgives us, our sins are truly and fully paid for. Because God's justice is satisfied through Jesus, He can be just to declare us righteous in Christ. Jesus makes us holy 
and He raises us up with Him to new life. And thanks to Jesus, we can return to God. That's good news. You know, friends, if you're here this morning, if, if you're not a Christian, you know, come to Jesus. You can return to God through Him. Proud Jerusalem has been disobedient and barren, yet when God redeems His people, Jerusalem is called the branch of the Lord, and Jerusalem will bear good fruit for God's glory. Before, they had pursued false worldly beauty, but now Jerusalem will be truly beautiful and glorious in God's sight. And this is true hope of real change. And only through the converting power of the gospel can we become a new creation in Christ. And God and Isaiah likens God's redemption to a new exodus. Just as God led Israel through the wilderness, so He will present His people glorious. He will be present with His people to protect and provide for them. You know, previously, the cloud by day and the flaming fire by night covered only the tabernacle. But Isaiah looks forward to an even greater redemption where God's glorious presence will be over all her assemblies. All of God's people will know the Lord. All of God's people will have the Lord's presence with them. And God is with us as we assemble as His people. And we, the church, are God's dwelling place where He reveals His presence and He is our refuge from the heat and storms of life. What the wonderful promises of Isaiah 2 to 4 have been fulfilled in Christ. Yet like the original hearers of Isaiah's prophecy, we await a more glorious fulfillment. By God's grace, we are not what we once were, but we are not yet what we should be. For now, we see the church with all her weaknesses, with all her faults, with all her failures. We're still faithless to God's truth. We are still unloving to one another. Instead of peace, we often see the church rife with quarrels and conflicts. We often repel rather than attract people to Jesus. We are so easily conformed to the world rather than transformed by the gospel. We are not yet what we should be. But it is not as though God's promises have failed. God is not done with us. He is still at work among us, refining and purifying us. If you notice chapter 4, verse 4, the canopy that Isaiah refers to, slightly to be a wedding canopy. Isaiah is thinking about a marriage a wedding canopy, a tent, a wedding tent. I think this speaks to the joyful union between God and His people. Jesus has given Himself to rescue His bride, the church, that He might sanctify her. And our Lord will not fail to present us, the church, to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish. So we await that glorious day. We still wait for the day when these words in Isaiah 2 and 4 are fully and gloriously fulfilled for us through Christ. 
And on that glorious day when faith turns to sight, the actual will become the ideal. And Revelation 21 says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So what's the takeaway for us? Look back in chapter 2, verse 5. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. You know, take to heart this encouragement, brothers and sisters. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Don't trust in ourselves. Don't take pride in things of this world. Walk in the light of the Lord. He will keep His promises. May we trust and hope in Him alone. The Lord is our light. The Lord is our salvation.